This is Asian Insider and I'm Nirmal Ghosh. Now, Myanmar in 2011 went through a very promising transition to a, a hybrid form of government. It's a constitution which retains, gives the military a lot of power, but also has some democratic elements. So that was a transition in 2011. It was widely welcomed. But since then, things have, after a couple of years of optimism, started going downhill. Ethnic conflicts have resumed. There are new groups now that the Myanmar army is fighting, new groups on the landscape. There was in 2017 driving out of the Rohingya from Rakhine state. And in a few days, State Councillor Dao Aung San Suu Kyi is going to be at The Hague to defend the government of Myanmar from genocide charges brought by Gambia. So it has been a bit of an unraveling of that project, which started with, with such hope in 2011. Now, into this comes a new book, The Hidden History of Burma, Race, Capitalism, and the Crisis of Democracy in the 21st Century by Thant Minh U. Dr. Thant Minh U, who is, if, if you haven't read his books, they are required reading, and I would certainly recommend this book. Now, if you look at a country like Myanmar, often it is somewhat fuzzy, but when you read this book in particular, all the parts will come into sharp focus. That's what this book does. It is a, it is a, a wide sweep of Myanmar history and chronicling recent events. So we are fortunate to have Dr. Tant on the phone with us. Hi, Dr. Tant, thanks for being with us today. Can you hear me? Yes, pleased to be with you. Okay, excellent. Uh, wonderful book. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it and I will, I'm certainly recommending it to anyone who's, who wants to understand Burma and especially these last few years, it's uh, very useful to have this kind of account. So thanks very much for doing that yes. book. And um, there's one thing you mentioned in the book um, in talking about the transition and also at uh, one of the talks you did in DC, I think it was the CSIS, you talked about sanctions, how sanctions was not really that significant a factor in the decision to you know, do, make the transition in Myanmar from 100% uh, military rule. But sanctions is now, again, back in fashion, of course, in DC, right? Uh, this uh, sanctions and tariffs have been weaponized as foreign policy and as trade policy. And uh, there have been some targeted sanctions on Myanmar, but there's talk of more as well because of the Rohingya issue and other human rights questions. But Again, the old question, do sanctions actually work? Would they work? I suppose you know, it depends on the context, and it's possible in other contexts it, it might be useful, and it might be useful as a, as a form of pressure during a, a diplomatic process. But what I can say for sure in the, in the Burma context is that sanctions were not at all part of the thinking of the generals uh, in their transition away from pure military dictatorship in, in 2010, 2011. That happened not because of um, uh, pressure from sanctions or any felt pressure from sanctions, but instead from internal political calculations. And it was a move towards the constitution that the army had been planning for a long time. Anyway, so this myth has kind of grown up, or at least has continued, that sanctions uh, were and might continue to be a useful tool in terms of outside pressure to get Burma or the Burma to do things that it doesn't want to do. I think partly it goes back to the fact that in 2011, the country went from this pure military dictatorship to 
to seemingly the, the, the sort of full light of, of, of democratic change. And people didn't really do their homework properly and, and think through and, and identify what were the drivers of change at the time. So people sort of fell in to this um, easy explanation that sanctions might have been part of the picture. And I think we have to remember that you know what sanctions were on Burma in the late 1990s and, and 2000s, at a time when the country was trying to come out of its own quarter century of isolation, mm-hmm. sanctions reinforced that isolation, had cut off Burma from the international banking system and included some of the tightest restrictions on international aid, including international humanitarian aid anywhere in the world. Would that kind of uh, regime even be possible today? Because, uh, I mean, the, the youth in Burma are so well-traveled, uh, it's, it's become sort of part of the global community again. I mean, I think on the one hand, because, because Burma has come out of this isolation and, and because there are more economic links around the world, I, I suppose sanctions in a way would have uh, even more dire consequences and, and would be felt by a, a broader section of the elites. So I suppose in that way, an argument could be made, and also because it is a more democratic country in many ways, that that sanctions uh, could pressure uh, or put pressure on the political establishment. But having said that, I think we have to remember that this is a country uh, and a leadership and a, and a, and an establishment that has that was very used to living in isolation. And I and I fear that you know it wouldn't make major changes to its policy approaches on key issues as a result of sanctions, and instead would just retreat into further isolation, or alternatively, just a much greater dependence on the rest of the region. Right, right. Um, another thing you mentioned in the book is uh, the political e- political economy, which is, has its roots actually in the colonial era, uh, but it's become, it became the economy, uh, so to speak. And now there's, there are still sizable chunks of it uh, left and it is still thriving. How does one take that into account? What does that mean in, our, in terms of understanding? Yeah, I think I think that you know the politics of the country are relatively well known. I think even the ethnic and identity related, often violent conflicts are, are well known. But I think this political economy story is 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 what's often quite hidden from the Burma picture. And as you said, you know, under colonialism, obviously it was an extremely exploitative political economy that led to a left wing reaction at independence decades of, of different socialist and communist movements and parties and, and, and government uh, experiments. Mm-hmm. Uh, but since the early 1990s, Burma has shifted into this very strange form of capitalism that has been intimately tied with trade with China, intimately tied to the ceasefires in the northeast of the country, often tied to illicit industries, including now a, a methamphetamine industry worth tens of billions of dollars uh, under army rule for, for most of that time. And I think it's still very much the economic system we have in the country. It's led to extreme inequality, unprecedented since colonial times. It's led to massive environmental uh, degradation. I think it's led to rising uh, economic anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I think, in a way, this question of what should this, what should become of this economic system, should be front and center of politics rather than something that's very much kept on the side. Yes, you know, if you think of all these uh, factors, it's actually a bit hard to be optimistic, certainly not as optimistic as we once were in the aftermath of 2011. And so the inevitable question, of course, is what about your ledger? Are you optimistic or are you pessimistic? And then we'll get to a second question, which um, you had mentioned earlier as well, which was climate change. Now, that is, is the big one, right, coming up the road. But let's start with, with your ledger. 
Yes, I think that, you know, even in, in 2011, 2012, I think the, the mythology around the country went from Burma as this kind of darkest of dictatorships where nothing was ever going to change, this mm. assumption that, you know, democracy, prosperity and peace were just around the corner. And I think that, that there was, I think people didn't realize that, you know, after decades of isolation, decades of military rule, the political economy added as it had developed as in the way that I explained just now, that the country was... Uh, already facing almost unsurmountable challenges. I mean, one of the terrible legacies of the past couple of generations has been the systematic underfunding of education. And so the, 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 the legacies of, of, of extremely poor education are, are extreme. I think on the other hand, I mean, Burma is a country with tremendous economic potential being next to the, some of the fastest growing markets in the region with a, with a young population that I think really wants to catch up with the rest of the region. Mm -hmm. You see thousands of, of young Burmese people setting up new companies, setting up uh, civil society organizations that are extremely dynamic. But you these enormous challenges and these enor this enormous potential next to each other, and it's, it's very hard to know whether to be pessimistic or optimistic. I think if you add uh, the issue of, of weak state institutions, then they are extremely weak institutions. Um, and just the fact that, you know, we, we are now the, the poorest country in the region. Uh, when you open up borders in a country that's this poor and this weak, I think the, the, the dangers of a sort of populist or nationalist backlash are also something that we have to consider or think about as well. Right. And Burma is uh, one of the countries most at risk, actually, from climate change, right? I think, you know, for a much uh, richer country, even a slightly richer country in, in Southeast Asia like Thailand, I think it might be possible to cope with some of these things. But for a country as poor as Burma, in the state that it is with conflict, with poor state institutions or weak state institutions, I think it's, it's going to be really tough uh, to see how it's going to, to be able to, to manage over these next 20, 30 years what is almost inevitable going to happen in terms of climate change. Yeah, you mentioned the weak state institutions that goes back to a question I was hoping to have time to ask, which is, uh, but, you know, pre-2011, at least the army was the institution. It was the state. And, you know, so many people worked for the army in some capacity or the other. It was the only institution really that mattered and dominated the landscape and all the other, the sort of bureaucracy, parts of the bureaucracy kind of atrophied. Has there been, is there any evidence of the normal institutions of government now sort of developing, evolving and gaining some credibility? There are new institutions on the scene. I mean, there's the National League for Democracy, which which was in opposition and, and locked up, and, and but now is is, is thriving in a, in a more uh, open political environment. There are other political parties. There are hundreds of CSOs. The bureaucracies themselves, though, are relatively unchanged. I mean, we have to mention also another big institution in the country, which is Facebook as well, which is which is all powerful in in, in many different ways. But I think what's important to point out is that even though the army was all powerful politically, and even though it weakened other state institutions. I think in a way what became even stronger over these past 20, 30 years have been these networks around the political economy, these networks of, of money making, of, of business, of rackets around illegal economies as well, uh, which in some ways are, are even stronger than the, than the formal institutions. And, and I think when we look at Burma, we have to think in terms of these networks around money making, uh, which are so um, uh, paramount now in terms of uh, what is actually animating uh, the country and, and, and shaping day-to-day -day life than any of these state institutions or even uh, civil society institutions as well. Okay, really interesting. Now, uh, one last quick one. Um, you've often sort of referred to Burma as a place where, of course, we know where World War II almost didn't stop. I mean, we know that it's been, you know, a 
there's not been a single day without conflict, I think, for decades in Burma, right? <clears throat> but um, one thing you said at one of your talks, I think, was that Burma always seems to be a country on the verge of becoming a failed state, but never actually does. It sort of continues. Somehow there is some dynamic that it that keeps it going with all these various conflicts in the borderlands and so on and so forth. So I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, on the one hand, this is a country that hasn't known peace since really World War II. We have a country or a landscape where maybe a third of the country is is dominated not just by army, but by many different ethnic armed organizations and hundreds of different militias, especially in the in the Northeast. We have these multi-billion dollar uh, illicit industries like methamphetamine mm. uh, production and, and trafficking. We have identity-based conflicts, weak institutions. So you wonder, you know, why isn't this country, despite the Rohingya violence and the and the intensity of the armed conflict, sometimes we have to wonder, you know, why isn't the country actually more violent? You know, are we on the cusp or on the brink of a of a sort of failed state scenario, or is something really holding this country together? And we don't really see the ingredients of that. And I think at least part of the answer revolves around what I mentioned before that the state institutions themselves are are very weak, but these networks around money-making have grown up organically over 25 years. They cross every ceasefire, racial, ethnic, religious line, mm -hmm. and may actually be part of the glue that's binding the country together in some ways. But I think we're just at the start of really understanding what is a huge part of, again, what is shaping uh, the landscape today. Okay, great. Dr. Tan, thank you very much. <laughs> this is the book. Here's the book again. Here's the book again by Dr. Tan Mint U. Be sure to get it if you want to get a really clear picture of where Myanmar has been at these last few years, especially, and what may be in store. Myanmar has again, is again experiencing a number of crises, and it is very important for the peace process, for one thing, to get going and for a resolution to be found to the long-running Rohingya crisis, the Rakhine crisis. For Asian Insider, I'm Nirbal Ghosh. <laughs>